Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. Fale Aitu. Many ancestral currents, past and present, carried Pacifica peoples from Tumuana Nui Akiwa to Aotearoa. Whilst each Pacific identity is unique, Experiences of migration, colonialism and courage are shared and vividly expressed in a thriving performance scene. Pacifica playwrights Oscar Kitely and Victor Roger are just two of the many whose work reflect the Pacifica migrant spirit and the relationships with Māori as tangata whenua. How are the multiple waka of Pacifica theatre navigating current global storms and what does the future hold? They share their thoughts with Lana Lepesi. In this session as part of the Talanoa series, curated by Gina Cole and supported by Totai Contemporary Pacific Arts Trust. We hope you enjoy it. Fatsalo uh, Fasu, welcome everybody to this session. Faliaitu with Oscar Kaitley and Victor Roger. Uh, my name is Lana Lopesi and I have the honour of being the chair for this session. Um, just a reminder to double check that your phones are on silence. Uh, make sure that you have signed in using the COVID tracker app or manually signed in. And you are more than welcome to wear a face mask in the audience if it makes you feel more comfortable. Um, please feel free to share Auckland Writers Festival on social media, although please do so with the consideration for fellow audience members. And um, this session was curated by Gina Cole, curator of the Talanoa series, with thanks to Tautai Contemporary Pacific Arts Trust for their support of the festival and the Talanoa series in particular. Uh, please do gather up your questions as we uh, discuss today and we'll um, have time for them at the end. Um, Oscar Kitely and Victor Roger really need no introduction. Uh, they are two phenomenal writers and culture makers that have had endless impact on the <laughs> stories we tell nationally. Um, both of them have won the Bruce Mason Playwriting Award. Yeah. They have both been awarded the Fulbright Creative New Zealand Pacific Writers Residency. Mm -hmm. uh, they were both recipients of various Creative New Zealand Arts Pacifica Awards. Uh, they both went to journalism school together many moons ago. And unbelievably, I'm told that this is the first time that they've been on a panel together as panellists. So let's give them a round of applause. So I just thought that we would start at the beginning um, at gen journalism school and in Christchurch. And I was just curious what it was that you envisioned yourselves doing at that time and what the pull was into journalism. Well, I, I loved reading so I, at school, so I wanted to be a writer. So, but I thought journalism was the only way you could get paid to write. So I applied for this course and it's like a cadetship from around the country. and. Um, Victor was on the same course, and I met him at this motel in Mangere. And it was amazing, one, that there was another Samoan um, on this course. And they put us in the same room together, because we were both brown. <laughs> <laughs> put the two brown guys together. Yeah, I was just... We were 17, eh, Victor? Yeah, 17. Yeah. Shucks. I was um, just starting my... Uh, my embrace of my Samoan side and I remember going, oh yeah, they just put us together because we're Samoan, rude. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was great. But uh, yeah, so I was based in Christchurch with my paper, Oscar was based in Auckland. Christchurch star, Auckland star. And it was like 20 people from throughout New Zealand coming together every so often yeah. to do a block course and then going home. I wanted to be a writer because I was into um, film criticism. And I read an um, American writer, Pauline Kael. You used to want to diss people. Yeah, that was part of it, for <laughs> sure. But um, I did want to do film reviews, and so I actively wanted to do journalism to get into the entertainment round, which is what I ended up doing, like doing music and film and TV. Yeah. And how does it feel now that you're on the other side of criticism? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, how does it feel? <laughs> Karma is a bitch, what can I say? But I think I've learnt, um, how is it on the other side? One thing I've learnt, and it's been very liberating, is that not everybody will like my work. That's just a given. Um, and so long as I, as the artist, am prepared to stand behind it, that is the important thing. Yeah. Cool. 
And while you were at the Auckland Star, Oscar, you changed your name from Osa to Oscar, as we now know you. Um, and you said in an interview before that your time, your four years at the Star and the Sunday Star Times provided you with a university education on what Kiwis are like. Mm. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Well, you know, when you're, when you're a minority um, in this country, you kind of grow up in a world within a world. You, you, you kind of know there's the big world out there called New Zealand, and it's the world that advertisements speak to and newsreaders talk to, and Telethon used to show you sometimes. But then there's your own world, which is very much family-based, and it's based around church and your cousins and your family. And you very So it wasn't until I got a job after leaving school that I went to town and discovered all these things, like brand muffins at 10.30. <laughs> felt like it was the dawn of the brand muffin era. I was like, why is everyone eating brand muffins at like 10.30? It was a thing. Um, but it started back then, and yeah, I didn't change my name legally, it's just the Balangi editor suggested yeah. that I use the English version of my name because at that time it was the late 80s and New Zealand wasn't as embracing of diversity, um, to put it politely. Mm. <laughs> and how about your transitions out of journalism? Yeah, well, for me, I uh, got invited to Paris randomly when I was on secondment up here at the Herald and by a friend, and, I, and she was like, come over, and I was like, okay, I will. And I like <laughs> quit, moved within two weeks before I could kind of talk myself out of it. And during that time, during my OE, which was a couple of years, I started working on what became my first play, Sons, which was, as I've um, talked about before the story that I kind of had to tell, dealing with the reasonably dramatic time I had as a young man trying to establish a relationship with my Samoan father who I'd never lived with um, while he was keeping me a secret from my half-siblings, who I was very desperate to meet. And I think, Oscar, you were sort I of met him at that time. And yeah. I used to wonder why Victor was always going off nightclubbing and getting really wasted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, it was, um, it was a That was part of it. That was part of it. And it was a pretty confusing time, and that, um, that's what led me to writing my first piece and getting out of journalism, that, that, that first story. And one of the things that drove me, apart from trying to make sense of that confusing time, was during that confusing time, there was nothing that represented my bit, my specific bit of the spectrum, which was mixed race, Balangi, Samoan, raised Balangi, no idea how to negotiate the culture, therefore no idea how to negotiate the father. And I was desperate for it, and I, I needed it. And because I wasn't there, that's what propelled me to write it. And Oscar was part of the very first workshop back in 1994, um, playing one of the darkest Afrikasis known to mankind. And, uh, <laughs> Probably the darkest Afrikasis known to mankind. No, I think Jula Kowale might have had that, that, that award. But Oscar was also part of the very first production of it in '95. How about you, Oscar? Mm? How, what was your transition out of journalism? Um, gosh, it was this course in 1991. This is back in the days when the Arts Council used to fund just get-togethers, and there was one for Pacific people, and I went and I was a journalist, and I met Dave Fani there, and Shimpale Elisi, and all these other amazing artists, all from different um, islands, who were calling Aotearoa home. And I just saw what they were doing, and I went, man, that's cool. Because I loved writing, but I had to do journalism, and I loved making stuff up, which isn't ideal. <laughs> um, and so it was a natural move into drama and stage. And so, yeah, that's, I went from journalism, and then in Christchurch, this amazing city down south, I, that's where I discovered my creative heart and worked with Pacific Underground. And we just started writing plays for us to do because none of us had been to drama school. So we thought, oh, let's just write plays about being Islanders because we don't have to train. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it started. I wanted to ask you about um, Pacific Underground, actually, as one of the founding members uh, of that collective. And, you know, the first play in 1993, Fresh Off the Boat, which was directed by Nathaniel Lees. Um, it's always struck me as someone of a slightly different generation looking back and wondering what was happening in Christchurch at that time that this kind of really amazing, you know, theatre cultural force sort of happened. Like, what was there going on around you that led to, you know, the creation of Pacific Underground and then the work that you all went on to make? 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, because Christchurch is anyone here from Christchurch? <laughs> it's um, it's one of those interesting places. It's um, it's got a lot of subsets to it, eh? And it was a really amazing place for Pacific people because we were kind of one of the many communities, and we were kind of left to ourselves and created this real insular space where we could just create work in the South Island and then just tour it north. And people were like, "What? You're from Christchurch?" Um, and yeah, it was just, but. I don't know, I wonder whether if we were in Auckland, whether we would have been able to do the same thing, whether we might have been more self-conscious in Auckland of mm. the bigger Pacifica community and the, the judgment that can, can that can tend to come with it. So I think Christchurch was just a perfect lab just to write stuff, eh, and then get it out. Well, it's interesting because there's not as many of us or weren't as many of us, say, there as opposed to here. But, you know, I went to Sunday school with, um, you know, Lady Six, Marlo, uh, Scribe, um, uh, Tanari, his brother, a few other people, and Dallas from uh, Fat Freddy's Drop. All that talent was uh, within that Faith Family Fellowship, which was um, attended by my mum and uh, our mutual good friend, uh, Lorsa Tamati, who was instrumental in uh, Pacific Underground, getting off the ground. A lot of, yeah, crazy, crazy amount of talent mm. down there that has since impacted the, the national... And maybe because it was smaller and more concentrated, we all found each other. You know, we were kind of drawn together. Whereas Auckland, there was a lot of different groups doing different things, like Pacific Theatre was going off up here, um, and other groups, and that's never really stopped. Are there some plays from that time that, you know, sort of stand out to you as uh, some of the more significant work personally that you worked on? I always think about A Frigate Bird Sings. Um, it was so challenging at the time. And also looking back with modern eyes, neither me or Dave are transgender. And we were trying to write this play that was trying to understand and represent a certain part of the Samoan cultural experience. We put it on stage. And I think if we were approaching that play today with our sensibilities today and greater knowledge and awareness of appropriation and representation, I think we'd do it differently. But that's what I think about sometimes. The play I think about is, is not mine, but it's um, John Newbell's play, Think of a Garden, which was done here in the 90s and again in Auckland, uh, in Wellington, like 95. And Nathaniel Lees did a production of that. That has always stuck with me, and um, there was a, a few years ago a production with Stacey Leilua, who's in the audience, a star of Young Rock, um, <laughs> just quietly. And um, that's not a play maybe a lot of people know, but that was certainly very influential on me. And, and John Newbell is a figure a lot of people don't know about. He was um, Samoan, and he wrote back in the day for like Gunsmoke and Star Trek. Hawaii and Hawaii Five -O. Five -O, you know. He's probably the first Samoan screenwriter in Hollywood, do you I've, think? I feel like I've never heard of another one. Mm. He would have been awesome to, to me. Mm. Um, in a 2005 issue of Specific Magazine, uh, someone sort of, yeah, there's a quote that said, would someone be naked or bros be in the town if it weren't for Pacific Underground? And I was kind of wondering how you feel about that legacy now. Like, it's quite a heavy thing if we think about you know, all of the projects that you've been involved in in theatre, but also, you know, screen and, um, yeah. Do you have I think for me, that? I wouldn't have done anything if it wasn't for Pacific Underground. I owe Pacific Underground, you know, everything. Because it, it was amazing to have be in a theatre group where you had actors that you'd write for and other writers working in the office and your vision was just to create work. And there seemed to it seemed to be a supportive time. But life seemed easier. Was it just the doll was more? <laughs> I can't remember. But it's, or was it just because we were younger and we weren't as hungry and weren't as I don't know? But it just felt like it was easier to just do stuff and not be scared about um, how you'd be judged or you know you'd be happy if you got twelve people in your audience or thirty. Um, and it, the buzz was just going on and making something and doing something that wasn't what was normally expected of you in life. Pacific Underground gave me my first break with um, Sons because I, I got a, some kind of gig as a 
something. I think we got some funding and paid you to be the manager. <laughs> yeah, paid, paid me to be the manager. Yeah, and um, I think you wrote the play in there yeah. at the same time. And that, um, I always cite Simon Small, who um, co-wrote Fish Off the Boats with um, Oscar, um, for encouraging me to um, get a draft of Sons together for a, a workshop, which I got accepted for, and sort of started me off on the path I'm on now. But I think that is probably the first and last deadline I've ever met <laughs> in my entire life. But I do, I do thank Simon Small for that, because without that encouragement to just go for it, I don't know that I would necessarily be sitting here. Yeah, we wouldn't be. Because, you know, we, we get to sit here and look flash. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> nothing in the arts is done by yourself, you know. Even solo shows take heaps of people uh, to put on. I wanted to go back to the um, idea that you raised, that it's sort of it was maybe once easier to kind of just create work. And it, it feels like a bit of a live issue at the moment, um, which I guess is kind of contradictory because we have so much Pacific work on screen and stage, I guess the most we've ever had, and across different genres, which is really exciting. But there is also sort of a, a temperature happening where it is kind of hard to just maybe be brave sometimes because of things like fear of being cancelled or... Uh, you know, kind of stepping into territory that's not yours. But, you know, Frigate Berg Sings was so seminal um, in so many ways as well. So I'm just kind of interested in that. Um, yeah, do you feel like there are sort of things that you would want to do but you kind of can't at the moment or that um, that's sort of like something of consideration? I think, um, and my sister's in the audience, but I was um, an only child till I was 16 and the miracle happened, uh, Kristen. Um, you know, I think having been an only child and raised as a Balangi, I'm very conscious that I haven't felt the weight of the culture, as I've said, capital T, capital C, on my shoulders, as opposed to some other writers, particularly young writers that I've seen. And because I had that, I think, only child upbringing until I was 16, reasonably entitled and not, um, not scared of saying the unsayable, you know, I think part of that comes with having had a father, um, an absent father, who seemed to sail through life without shame, as opposed to a young teenage mother who carried shame, you know, for the same thing. And I think, for me, I saw what I call the underside of the culture before I saw the good sides of it, and I've never been explored to, ex to explore the underside. And I think it's necessary. One thing I always say to the young ones that I teach is that we've all got stuff you know, but a lot of them are so scared of offending family, community, that they don't go there, even though so many of them have the this, this stuff. And I think that's what I really crave with the new stuff, is for people to start showing their teeth in the work. We do community-friendly stuff really, really well, and I love it. I can't do that, and that's why I admire it when I see it. Yeah, but it is. It's a, it's a talent to be able to do that, like um, Wizard of Otahuhu, a show like that, if any of you have seen that. Um, it's just a fantastic community piece. It's widely accessible. But um, the stuff, the stuff is what I want to see and what I don't feel afraid to explore. But also, there's a, the, the term Pacific Story, I mean, we've both worked in film, well, TV um, for so many years. What is a Pacific Story? And that, that's changed a lot. I did an article a few years ago about the film Gary of the Pacific. Did anybody see that film? Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the one that's made me angriest. And that would probably be labelled by some people as a Pacific film because it has Pacific actors and is set in a fictional Pacific island, but no, to my knowledge, Pacific creatives behind it. And Tatao. Did anybody see Tatao, the BBC SPP co-production? All my life. You know, and that would maybe be called a Pacific story back in the day, but I don't think it would get away with it now. But yes, the ca and the last thing, yeah, the cancel culture. Yes, I mean I've been cancelled a little bit for my play Club Paradiso, at least that one. Um, yeah, it's unpleasant, but again, um, I stand behind that work as a as the artist. You know, even though I got accused of racism with that particular piece, um, dealing with brown trauma brown bodies, you know, to Balangi audiences, but um, I still love it, yeah. 
I remember when, like, the, the, the people we were most afraid of offending, like, when we were doing naked Samoans and stuff, was the elders in our community. We, th those were, because we didn't want to get hidings. <laughs> so those were the people we were the most scared about offending, and actually they were the most supportive. They were just glad to see people telling stories, and they were, they were really awesome. The ones that we kind of tended to attract most criticism was from the actually younger, kind of more socially conservative people. And I found that really interesting, because I always assume that every generation gets more fun as they go. Um, <laughs> not always the way. I had a play, My Name is Gary Cooper, in 2007, which has anal, BJ's, incest, you name it, it's in there. And um, it's inspired partly by the film Return to Paradise that was shot in um, Samoa in the 50s. And one of the actresses from the film, Moira um, Walker, was there on opening night. And I was like, oh my life. <laughs> <laughs> and Anapala Polataivao, um, one of the actors in the piece, was with me when we saw her. And I was like, we're going to get stoned to death, aren't we? And she was like, yeah, babe, we are. <laughs> but after the play, we saw Moira, just asked how she found it. And she was like, it's 2007, not 1957, and I found that really generous. And I think, um, yes, there will be some people that get offended, but there's enough people out there that, mm. that roll with it. Mm. There will always be a spectrum. That's yeah. the word. There will always be a spectrum. Yeah. I think we're two of the more offensive Pacific writers. <laughs> uh, you think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is the idea of a Pacific story or that kind of yeah, like even that as a concept, is that more of a hindrance than, than a help? Well, it's only a Pacific story when it's being uh, denoted or siloed as opposed to the hashtag dominant narrative, right? I never, when I started out, called myself a Pacific writer. That is a, a, um, a term that got put onto me, even while I was still figuring out who I was culturally. I just put it on you again. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. But it's it's different now. I mean, I'm proud. I'm. I couldn't imagine not identifying with my Pacific side now. But I, I, I'm very aware I identify with it on my own terms, and that in terms of that spectrum, I'm probably over here compared to a few people. But um, I have no idea where I was going with that. Sorry, so tired. <laughs> I had my cousin throwing up in my room, <laughs> my hotel room, all all, all night. I'm very oh tired. no! I know. Are they all right? I hope so. What do you think, Oscar? What was the question? Is the idea of the Pacific story... Oh, yeah, hindrance? I don't know. It's weird. I mean, the late, great um, Samoan opera singer, Sefranari, used to have this thing about opera. You know, he was, a, his so he was singing in Italian, but he's a Samoan opera singer. You know, so can he be a Pacific artist? Um, I don't know. And it's, it's, it's an interesting question now, especially with ideas like story sovereignty and all that being such a hot topic um, as we get more and more productions and more support for diverse productions. I don't have a firm or settled um, opinion on that yet. Ooh, nice. Yeah, you like that one. I do like that one. <laughs> I don't have a firm or settled opinion on that. <laughs> <laughs> the Gemini loves the sort of not committing to either one, eh? Well, it's hard when you're a Gemini, I'm sorry. Are there any Geminis <laughs> in the audience? You know what it's like. Yeah, yeah I know, change your mind all the time. Yeah, and actually my ascendancy is Gemini. Gemini uh, Rising, so brother, got it going on. Interesting. Mm. <laughs> um, while I have you, I just wanted to talk about um, the new show that aired on Prime on Thursday and is produced on Coconut, is now available there, um, which you wrote the first episode, Gingesa. Um Can you tell us a little bit about sort of writing that story? Sure. Um, <laughs> Well, I mean, that was like... Like how she waited for 24 minutes gone before she had <laughs> you with that. Yeah, I mean, what is the... What, what, I mean, I did that kind of as a favour to my mate Karen, who was um, producing it. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, essentially it's a story about a naughty little afakasi who doesn't really know the culture, but is um, exploiting that part of herself for um, personal gain within the art community. Um, and we have Ms. Pit Maulam, one of the stars of the, the show in the audience as well. Um, and I guess, yeah, it's, um, 
I was just exploring an archetype that I've seen, and maybe you know how the artist is always revealed through the work. Maybe I'm exploring uh, a version of myself that has existed in the past, <laughs> or, or not. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe I only just realised that as, as I was saying that sentence out loud. But, um, yeah, it's, it's it's for me. I really enjoyed writing it. Um, part of me expects to get cancelled for it, but the the why. The, well, just, you know, because it's dealing with, you know, who it's dealing with. Right. But, um, and I haven't seen it, so I actually can't give a, a considered response on it yet. I'll pass that baton back for the moment. <laughs> I guess I was just interested in the topic even itself, which is sort of the otherworldly is, uh, I guess, could be quite divisive within... Pacific communities of whether sort of that is a material for um, making work about well, and not. Yes, these are questions that kind of floated across my mind in the writing of it. But you know, at the end of the day, I wrote it, and it, it is something I would stand behind, even though the brickbacks may still be coming. Who knows? Who knows? Thanks. Um, I guess in terms of uh, just thinking about that work, but also the Dawn Ray documentary and sort of the responsibility of dealing with either cultural material or sort of real people's lives and um, how you kind of deal with that responsibility as storytellers. Um, there was once a question in there and I lost it. Could you speak on that? <laughs> About the responsibility of dealing with real people's lives. Yeah, well, you know... storytelling. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I found that quite hard and with docos it's a real thing. I didn't realise the pastoral care that went along and especially when it's people really close to you, it's a subject matter that's really close to you. It's just a movie to you, it's 90 minutes, it's, your, it's a gig. Um, but it's 20 years of these people's lives and you do have a responsibility and I did feel that very heavily. And I think that's, going back to the question about Pacific story, I feel like at the heart of it, there has to be something like that. There has to be a, you can't just do a Pacific story because there's a funding round and they're looking for Pacific stories. It, 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 it has to be, I mean, like, take the film James and Izzy, right? Florian um, Harbert, sorry if I pronounced his name right, wrong. He's a, a, a Balangi director, two Māori characters, absolutely beautiful film. I feel like his intent coloured it with what was required in order for it to exist at a really beautiful, authentic piece of art. And I think with Pacific Stories, a lot is your intent with it. Um, you know, with like, with Tainisa, the intent I assume is to tell, is to explore this different side of our stories and to, you know, and take on that challenge of bringing that to screen. Um, whereas maybe setting a movie in the Pacific because, you know, you think it looks good on a poster, maybe isn't the totally with it um, intent that will get you a good result. Did that answer your question? Was that, did that make any sense? Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> um, some of you may have read the memoir, um, The Mirror Book by Charlotte Grimshaw. She just did a session with two other writers um, in the main room. Um, you know, and she's had a fair amount of flack for, um, not exactly shanking her parents, but certainly holding to, to account in terms of her truth of the upbringing. Um, that's a decision she's made to do that because the parents are still alive. And that's something I, th I think it's one of the, well, I, I don't think, it is one of the best things I've read in a long time. Um, but it made me think of my first place sons where I was dealing with uh, real life figures because they were all inspired by people from my life. Um, and it's, it's very tricky when you are dealing with um, real life people, but it was interesting hearing this previous panel that we just came from. You know, all three people who have done a memoir didn't seem to regret using real life figures who are still alive and were prepared to deal with the consequence. I will say, and I've said it before, um, and, and my burning desire to tell my own truth in Sons, I also told, amongst other people's, a part of my mother's truth. And I know that she was, um, and you were with her, Kristen, I think, maybe at that Wellington production. 
she was devastated, particularly in that production, because she felt like I had exposed the world to her pain, and I had, you know, and I had a choice um, afterwards to either keep letting that play be produced or withdraw it. But I, rightly or wrongly, I made the choice to keep producing it, even though I knew it unsettled her. Um, and the thing of it is, the, the last production, this is a play, first one on 95, the latest production was like two or three years ago in Wellington, drama school did it. And mum was ready and actively ready to see it and wanted to see it then. She was ready to see it with a little bit more distance. And I, I, don't, regret, I don't regret that it's kept going on, but at the same time, um, I was devastated at the time that she was devastated by that. And I had one half, half, one of my half brothers on dad's side um, come to see the play in, um, in Auckland. And a version that I was in, that I essentially played myself, and I must say got a bad review for playing myself. <laughs> oh yeah, it was amazing guys, I can actually <laughs> quote it verbatim. Were you not believable enough as yourself? Well, I actually, I, underst I understood it after watching Beulah Koali do it um, a few years ago in Mangere, because Beulah... Um, playing the role inspired by me took it to places I would never have dreamed of taking it because I could only really play it the way it was for me in real life. He had the freedom to go here, there, everywhere. You, you were too close to it. Too close. I was not free. I was very locked. Um, but I was going to say something profound about that and it's gone. <laughs> Good afternoon and thank you so much for coming, everybody. Yeah. But so that decision to, you know, write that story and write a part of your mum's story and then keep that work going. Is it sort of just the sacrifice that we make for our art or, you know, what is that, what is that sort of thinking process? I think it's, um, I think it's necessary. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's part of the, the load that artists kind of take upon themselves, but it's almost a process of what we call breaking tapu. You know, there's a lot of stories that, in our community, that people think, no, don't ever tell them, don't ever share them, you know. But actually the process of breaking tuple, putting these stories out, letting sunlight onto stuff, actually is so much freeing. I think, and I, thought I would be, always, I always encourage people, go there, go there. <laughs> I, and when you talk about that, Os, I yeah. think of, I produce um, my cousin Tusiata Avi, a multiple award-winning uh, poet, I, I produced her play Wild Dogs Under My Skirt and have done for the last five years on and off. One of the profound things for me has been watching um, particularly young Pacific women come out of that play shaken, but shaken in a really profound way because they have seen a piece of work that is naming something, you know, that has affected them in some way. And that's, um, that is the power of the work. You know, and if someone had tried to sound it, like we um, did it for, we did a recorded version for Radio New Zealand and had to push back against um, some uh, proposed censorship. And certainly they wanted, they were very iffy about some of the mentions of abuse. But I was like, you can't get rid, this is such an integral, important part of the piece. Can't be lost. Can't be lost. And happily wasn't. Hmm. Yeah. It's important. It's really it's important. important. You have to do it. Yeah. And then people will get all upset and then it's all good. <laughs> they get over it. Oh, no. Well, you know, oh, no. I mean, look at what used to be tapu in Western storytelling, you know. Um, and we, this, how else do we move on and create space and freedom for everyone? Mm. I think that's quite interesting because what you're sort of talking about as well is um, work that uh, at the time that it was made, was maybe highly controversial and sort of in retrospect kind of gets welcomed into the, the canon and we start to see, um, you know, the kind of seminal qualities that it had after the fact, perhaps. But there's also works that don't age so well. Hmm? And I guess I was kind <laughs> of interested to talk about both Club Paradiso and Brotown for the um, sort of characters that they created at the time which maybe wouldn't do so well today. And I guess just that question of, you know, do works sort of stay in their time or can we sort of keep bringing them back? 
is, it, is this the bit where I push over the table <laughs> and throw my chair in the audience? No, it's, um, I, I think Club Paradiso still stands. Like we did it maybe two years ago. Um, it's, it's absolutely my darkest piece uh, and probably my most divisive, but again, I stand behind it and I still think it has uh, something. I think it has aged okay. I can think of other work. Rantus Stantrum, which is a work that I don't know has aged as well. That's a play that I wrote in 2002, trying to explore the dynamic of race in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And um, as I've said many times, race is something that fascinates me, and I'm sure it has something to do with being mixed race myself and having been in that either, either, neither, neither, seeing it from both sides, either side kind of point of view. I don't know that that has necessarily aged as well as a piece, because that got revived a few years ago. And, um, yeah, I felt like it was really accurate. Oh, then I take that back. <laughs> it's amazing! <laughs> but I, I think, as someone who has perhaps somewhat of a similar positionality to you, I could see that situation, or I have seen situations like that, whereas other people that I was with thought it was sort of unbelievable or... Yeah, I think the essence of it is because it's trying to explore race, which is still a gnarly topic, no matter how you dice it here. But um, I think it's the, the form, the, the form of it is the thing that me as a writer goes a little bit, oh no, oh mummy, please, no, make it go away. <laughs> um, I'm proud of Brochow. I always will be. Um, I never used to understand when people would say, oh, stereotypes, because to me they were characters based on real people. And the fact that people called them stereotypes was the troubling thing. It's like, oh, there's a alcoholic island dad stereotype. Well, why is that a stereotype? Why can't he just be an island dad who likes beer? You know, why does he have to be representative of every island dad? Um, I mean, sure, people's sensibilities are different now, and they may react differently, but if you know the naked Samoan style, and this is what I'll always love about TV3, Katharina Denave and some of the fairy godparents of Brotown, Elizabeth Mitchell, Kelly Martin, was our style was really quite full on. Like, anyone who's seen the naked Samoans live, it was just take no prisoners. And so when we got to Brotown, we kind of tried to pair it back, and they were like, nope. You've got to be yourselves, you've got to be... And because our style, the, the stories w wasn't about that style. That style was a language. Mm. The stories that we were exploring was about poverty, was about uh, cultural expectations. It wasn't a comedy about being calling people names. So I kind of reject that a little bit, a lot. <laughs> um, you know, and I think when I think people dismiss a lot of brown art saying stereotypes or push the table over. do this and that. Um, and really, you have to look at well, what does that say about society's conditioning? That they'll look at a character and think that that's somehow representative of everyone instead of why can't they just be a character? You know, no one looks at Pakeha and go, oh, you're all gangsters from Italy. Because they know Godfather was a story about a certain movement and, you know, thing from a certain part of the world. It's not representative of all Pākehā people or white Americans. And yet somehow our stuff has to be seen as documentaries. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So we probably haven't come that far then of that is sort of still the conversation that's happening or that sort of gets put onto Pacific work around yeah, stereotypes think and archetypes. Busfika creatives in the audience might maybe re relate to that <laughs> and just, you know, the, the challenge of doing something. And But that's art though, isn't it? That's the process of making art. You're always going to attract something. Um, I always quote, misquote, I think, Edward Albee, who's one of my favourite writers, who wrote Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And he said something along the lines of, if your play is not offending someone, there is probably something very wrong with your play. And I absolutely agree with that. And aligned to that is that quote I often quote, um, art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable, you know? And I need that squirm. <laughs> I need that squirm when, often when I'm at theatre, or it's like, what is... Particularly, you know, because often with works, you'll be one of the few people of colour in the, in the room. And if that, the majority in the audience are not being challenged or made to feel uncomfortable in some way, I'm like, well, what is, what is the point here, you know? Make them squirm, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's got to be... You're giving up your lifetime, eh? Hey. 
like two hours of your life, you've got to... That you're not going to get back. That you're not going to get back. Yeah. If you're just going there to look at politely at a story and then you can just go to Burger King after and go, oh, cool. Should I go there with cheese? Um, something's wrong. I've, that's why, going back to what you were saying about the need to be brave and... It's not brave, it's just be yourself. It's just, you know, challenging everything. So is that kind of what you would say good artists then, that lead to squirm or...? Yeah, I think part of it is giving yourself, and I understand the, the um, challenge for some people, but giving yourself the permission to just say the thing that you need to say, you know? And a lot of people are scared about saying it, but that is the stuff where change and art happens, I mm. think. You know, the, the, the amazing panel that I went to on Thursday with um, Tusiata Avia, Selena Tusitalamash, and Carlo Mila, um, and um, uh, moderated by Grace Taylor, um, they all spoke about that thing of permission, you know, and I think it's, it's a, like I said, a challenge for some, but it's, it's necessary for the work, you know, to have meaning, you know. Oh, deep. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I love this, it. Uh, I love it. <laughs> There's this theatre director from LA, his name's Peter Sellers, he's a pretty visionary person and I saw him talk one time and at the end of his talk he shared with us his three-step guide to making art and I heard it and I thought, that's so cool and so I've tried to kind of take it upon myself. Would you like me to share it? Yes, please. So this is Peter Sellers, this amazing theatre guy, he steps, shares his three-step guide to making art. Okay, step one. Imagine a world that you want to live in. Step two, create that world. And step three, live in it. So in terms of the question about what's good art, well, that's... I apply those rules, you know, and without a judgment of good or bad. Yeah, I love that because that's very um, attuned to stuff people like Albert Wentz and Toni Morrison and Octavia E. Butler have previously said, which is, um, I'm going on a tangent here, if you're not in the narrative, write yourself in, you know, and that's certainly what I feel like I did with my work, you know, to write my, because I don't think we... We, we mixed races, we point fivers <laughs> were, were really part of the narrative with our bit of the, of the, sub, of the, of the spectrum that we're on. And, that, and part of that is, and that's creating the world that you want to see, your own world represented. <coughs> and I guess that's part of the gift that you sort of give to the next creatives that come through, right, is that some of the narrative has been filled in a bit and so people can kind of you know, find their own ways to build on and expand that. I love, um, again, a tangent. I think it was the last time I was here, or not so long ago, I hadn't really read my program for what I was doing. I thought I was going to do a workshop with like 20 kids and ended up in the main auditorium about to give a talk to 2,000. <laughs> and I was like, oh my good life. But, um, you know, I did my spiel, talked about my backstory, and all the little mixed races and all the fatherless um, mixed, well, all the fatherless kids came up afterwards, because that's been a lot of my narrative, you know, absent father, mixed race, um, tortured, tortured mulatto melodrama, <laughs> you know, but it was really nice to have that connection with them, you know, and for them to feel hashtag seen, you know. It's that, um, Tony, speaking about giving permission, Tony Morrison says that thing where she used to imagine that there was this um, white guy on her right shoulder looking at her work and applying a lens on it that she had to try and put through and, and then she suddenly thought, well, no, why? Yeah. Why am I getting that permission in order to do this stuff? So she was a great example. I want to come to a question soon. So if you um, do have one or two, there are a couple mics there, um, so feel free to start lining up. Um, but I guess Being I very good, eh? Everyone's listening. So <laughs> thank you. I was um, wondering what you feel we need now as a creative sector. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> for me, it is more uh, it's more teeth in the work, you know, more more squirm. That's what I really crave to see. Having said that. <laughs> As a Gemini, um, you know, there's some dance work that I have seen recently that has totally activated my 
my, my joy button, which absolutely doesn't get activated very often. But um, there's a work called Shall We that's coming up here not in the not-too-distant future. I don't know if you've seen it, Os, by a young um, choreographer whose name escapes me. It's the, one of the best things I've seen. So clever, uh, so light and, and delightful. Um, but there's also another young choreographer whose name escapes me, who did a wonderful piece in response to Heather Duplessis' thingy thingies mm. leeches comment about Pacific Islanders. Um, and I love seeing a, a young Pacific choreographer get his teeth out and respond to something quite contemporary. Something quite contemporary. I loved that. Yeah. Um, more dance would be awesome. There used to be way more contemporary dance back in the day, it seems. Um, but I, I would like to see um, funding agencies uh, be less prescriptive about what they want to see and just get out of the way and just be more open. Because if you look at all the amazing art we've had in the last 50 years, it's sprung out. The artists are there, the people are there. You've just got to get out of the way. So kind of have less blockages, create more openness, and it's not like we need more of this, we need more of this, we need more of that. Just get out of the way, leave it all open, and then anyone who wants to come through, there's space there and support. And I have banged on for a long time, and it's starting to happen. I've never thought real change for us could really happen until more of us are in that top tier of decision-making, and I think that that is really important that people start ascending and it's, I'm starting to see it happen in, in some organisations and that's really exciting. Well look at Carmel here. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Oh, do we have any do we have any audience questions? Oh yep. Speak of um, Pacific stories and Pacific people as though Pacific people were one large, happy, harmonious, homogeneous group. Is that, in fact, the way you see it and the way it is? Or are there, in fact, profound differences between different Pacific peoples and cultures? Well, there are profound differences. That's why we need more stories that explore those differences. So, yeah, absolutely, we're not all one big, happy, la-la group. That's why we want to see more. That's why we want to see stuff replying to HDPA's leeches comment. That's why we want to see movements, you know, that are happening in different parts of Auckland that are kind of just grabbing attention. Yeah, there's a spectrum. That's something I've found working in, um, particularly in, in TV, pushing back against um, or uh, in, in, uh, increasing the spectrum of how we are represented. Because often I think some people think we, we, are, we are all one homogenous this, but we're that, you know, from heavy metalers to, I don't know, voguers to whatever, people who love God, people who don't give a tinker's cuss, you know, and that often gets mm. lost. And, and Our stories start conditioning us into certain ways of being because those are the narratives that are part of the environment that we're exposed to. And people react to that, thinking, oh, that's how we're supposed to be, or that's it. And that's why it's good to just bust it open. You, you know, the, you don't have to, it doesn't have to have these certain boxes. It should just happen. And there's that Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie thing of, like, the danger of that one story, you know, the one narrative that we must all subscribe to. And, of course, we don't. Mm. I mean, arguably, the only thing we have in common, apart from our you know, 35 years shared history from back in the day. Wow. Is that we both have Samoan heritage, but we are both very, I, I think, very different as artists and see the world. Mm. Uh, and glasses. And glasses. <laughs> yes. Paul Taylor. Oliver Goldsmith. <laughs> nice. Any other questions? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, a question to each of you. So, uh, firstly, Victor, you used to write as well for Shortland Street. Some of us love it, some of us don't love it. Um, was you know, there an expectation that you were representing diverse views or diverse stories in your job writing? 
for Shortland Street and how do you think that went? That's my question to you. Uh, and to Oscar, um, you know, I know that you're a very proud Westie as well and you've got the tattoo on your, on your stomach. I, I do, west side on my stomach. Yeah. <laughs> um, just um, wanting to hear a little bit about the influence of growing up in West Auckland, as a West Auckland MP, of course I'm interested, um, on um, your career in the arts. Yeah. Well, West Auckland is so cool because it's less segregated <laughs> than other parts of Auckland. There are certain communities that favour one particular side of the city, but out west, everyone lives together. And so I was going to school and being mates with people that loved Motorhead and Led Zepp and, and also the sons of Croatian settlers who you know, had been there for years. And it was just a big melting pot. And so as an artist, I guess that kind of made me feel more a part of New Zealand, I guess, in terms of my storytelling. And my storytelling was about, hey, we're human too, you know. Um, whereas, so that's what West Auckland did for me. I, I grew up around really diverse communities and we were all the same. We were united by being West Aucklanders. Um, so that gave me a really open perspective when it came to telling stories. I think when we met all those years ago, you were a Rolling Stones completist. Are you still? Yes. Mm. Yeah. Thanks for outing that, Victor. <laughs> My absolute pleasure, everyone. Um, <laughs> Shortland Street. Shortland yeah, Street. Gosh, I mean, do you still work? You work on Shortland Street. Yeah. Do you still? Yeah, sometimes. On and off. Yeah. Yeah, Shortland Street. Gosh. Um, no, it's interesting because I was a bit of a malamute around the um, storylining table. And didn't oh, often, what? Like, didn't say an awful lot oh. sometimes. Good but, one. you know, I kind of ticked gay, uh, Samoan, uh, I'm sure a few other boxes. And what was your question about it? Was it. Were you there to represent diverse views? And, and how did you think it went? Well, I don't think I did. Well, I think, I don't know. It was, it's interesting. I, I don't want to bag Shortland Street because it gave me a living for such a long time. And whether you like it or, or, or don't watch it or whatever, it's one of the few opportunities, or certainly was one of the few opportunities to hear our vernacular on the daily, you know, and I think that can't be underestimated. Um, I mm. think the thing I did find frustrating was... <sighs> when you are that one, and I, sometimes I was that one, and when you aren't that one, sometimes you can get siloed. I'm not saying it happened to me, but I've seen it. You get siloed as the, the grouchy brown person if you keep pushing back against stuff. And I learned actually from one actress on the show uh, who was Marty, who used to just complain about everything. You know, <laughs> and I felt like the bosses could never differentiate between what was super important and what was trivial because they just heard the complaint and in the end they just heard, I think, brown noise and didn't really register what was of import. So um, this is very indirect answering to that. I learned to pick my battles for the stuff that really made me rather cross and made me do a once around the building <laughs> um, to to speak my truth. But there's a thing about speaking your truth. Even, even now, sometimes I, I, I find it a, a struggle. And I, I've spoken about this a few places. You know, I was um, on a thing a couple of years ago with, you know, majority Balangi uh, participants. And I bit my tongue three times one morning, uncharacteristically. And then I just felt this kind of fire kind of go... <laughs> up my body and then out my mouth I was like I want every white person in this room to know that when you're dealing with minorities at some stage we're biting our tongue and not saying what we really think because I was so fucked off and part of it was I was fucked off with myself for having bitten my tongue and even with my hashtag Afakasi privileged I realised that I, like a lot of us, had been conditioned not to make Alangi people uncomfortable. And so we think the thing, and maybe we'll say it at morning tea with each other or in the pub with each other, but we won't actually say it out loud because we are not used to making Balangis feel uncomfortable. And in that moment, I was like, fuck it, you're going to feel uncomfortable. A variation of that squirm. And that created a, a big reaction in the group from people who were taking it very personally to one person cried and one person was super curious 
like genuinely curious, but it started a conversation, and, I, and this is a big shift from what you were asking, Carmel, but the change can't happen unless there is that discomfort, and I feel there's such a rush sometimes to get back to, let's get back to the comfortable place where we're all getting along. That is not where change is going to happen. We have to learn to stay and sit in the uncomfortable space in order to move things along, you know. That is how we live on the daily and what we have learned to negotiate because I was having a conversation with another little point fiver about this the other day. You know, that thing of, like, we've just learned to negotiate stuff. And how wonderful when we don't have to, you know, when we're just hanging out with each other. You know, quite profound for me, um, when I did my play Girl on a Corner in 2015, it was the first time I'd worked on a project from top to bottom, brown creatives. I mean, I've had great times, don't get me wrong, in Balangi spaces, but there was something about working with an all-brown crew where we're just all on the same page, there's no negotiation, there's no interpretation, there's no jumping through hoops necessary. We just are, you know? And that's, that's where it's at for me, mate. Yeah. I hope everyone's uncomfortable after that. My Fisili is around um, the title of today's Talanoa, Whareitu, or House of Spirits. Um, and I'm just curious uh, to what you both think around um, the tradition of comedy, um, particularly within the Samoan culture around Whareitu and how that has kind of impacted your work or not impacted your work? Hugely. Whareitu, uh, House of Spirits, it's a performing style it's been going on for centuries in Samoa, and performers would go from village to village and entertain and have a go at sacred cows and village politics and attack authority figures. And, but they were safe because the excuse was, well, that spirits were possessing the house and that it was okay, so you wouldn't get stoned to death after. That thing we were talking about before. And so I love that, and I love it when I see it in Samoa, and that's been a big part of our stuff. And that's, you know, that's why it's weird, though, when you kind of do this, have this real gung-ho approach, and it's like, we're spirits, there's spirits in the house, you can't blame us, and then, you know, lots of people are blaming you. Um, but I love it, and answer your question, I'm really glad you brought it up. That's, that's why I did this talk, because I was like, oh, cool, I get to talk about Faleku. And thanks for asking that question three minutes before the end. Yeah, but it's interesting because for me that is not a phrase that has an emotional resonance with me because that's where I'm at as a, my, my, where I lie on the spectrum. So that is part of the thing of like, no, we're not all the same. I don't have a, a, a huge emotional connection to that term, Paul. So, yeah, just where it is. Uh, one final question. Thank you. 
I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm just going to cut you off and see if anybody wants to quickly comment on the inertia with 50 seconds on the clock. Man, the young people I see, there's not much inertia. They're doing heaps. And they're doing really cool stuff and stuff that's really challenging and stuff that I don't see. And they're actually looking like things like the Dawn Raids in a new way. We used to write plays about it. Um, that label, I mean, if you, there's this amazing film. It's 90 minutes. It's called Dawn Raid. And um, they explain why they used it. So, yeah, ab absolutely. The, the very term has a lot of mamai. Absolutely. And everyone has a different emotional connection to that term. For that label, that's how they did it. You know, that's how they seize that power back. And I see, um, I just saw something on Coconut the other day. There's a young filmmaker from Porirua who's making a film called Raids based on that stuff. And I'm really interested to see the, it through their eyes now when it is more historic. So I'm not sure, sir, about the inertia. I, I mean, the young people I see out there doing stuff are pretty awesome. And ch looking at old stuff that used to bug us heaps in a really fresh way and negotiating a new way forward. Well, thank you so much. That brings us to the end. So, Tanakwe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi or Tāmaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.